one second. Record on this computer. Okay, perfect. Okay, let's get started. So, episode four on Doctor Doctors. We're back. We How are, are you, Rush? I am good. I am very good. How are you, Sarah? I'm exhausted. Has <laughs> <laughs> it been a long day of streaming today? Not today. It's just I feel like I might have been overbooking my days a lot. Yeah, um, like I decided on like I wouldn't stream like do the study stream on Mondays and Tuesdays but then I decided I would do it just talking stream on Monday evenings on Twitch because that to me doesn't feel like work at all like I really enjoy talking to people but it, I realized it cuts my day awkwardly in half and then afterwards we have the movie nights and you know that's also technically relaxing but like because then I'm there I feel like I can't do other things I'm meant to do and then Tuesday is my day off as well but I do a Turkish uh, chatting only Twitch stream and then we record the podcast and like it doesn't feel like work but I also realize that it's not like time off either. Like, it's a lot of commitments. It's a lot of commitments and I've seen that you signed yourself up to a, a lot of commitments over the past couple of weeks. Yeah so I'm, I'm, I'm tired like it's just I don't mind the just chatting ones and recording the podcast and stuff because like I said like I genuinely enjoy that stuff like it doesn't feel like work because if it did then I I wouldn't have done uh, so many of them but I think it's kind of it would be nice to have just like one day where I do absolutely nothing like where I could just be an absolute bum and like lie around like just just lie down the entire day and do absolutely nothing but, <laughs> yeah that's basically yeah. uh my weekends in a nutshell I don't care I mean that. it's not like it, it doesn't feel to me like you have a lot of free time either oh no no I I try to keep myself busy because if I'm not busy I just feel ineffective not really I'm just wasting my time otherwise you know so I, I quite like to stay um busy but then if I get something that's like too much um work or you know I sign myself up for something that I at the time I was really interested in but then I'm not really that proactive about it then I kind of just I don't know, that seems more of a chore, but usually I don't sign myself up to things that, more, um, that give me that sensation. So I don't know, lately uh, with the university stuff, it's been more of a chore scenario than it has anything else. Like I'm trying to start a, um, uh, trying to start some introduction stuff for my thesis that's going to be on COVID. And after a year of just hearing about COVID, I don't want to write about it at all. <laughs> and then I've got to sign up for two months worth of internships. So a lot of things that I, I need to do that I'm not really feeling proactive about. So I'm just procrastinating by making uh, guides and stuff for my university these days. But that's about it, really. Oh, and the holidays. Oh, I mean, are they really holidays? Let's be honest. <laughs> like... <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a thing in Turkish customs to celebrate New Year's rather than, you know, the yeah, yeah. 25th. Do you have any plans for New Year's? uh i'm doing a 24-hour stream Ooh, very nice because i'm an idiot that agrees to things <laughs> way too in advance like i think it was like a month ago or like six weeks ago i said that if i ever got to 5,000 subscribers because it felt like it was going to be like so many months away that like i wouldn't have to think about it that i would be like yeah sure i'll do a 24-hour stream sounds good to me <laughs> and i hit it yesterday so I was like, okay, might as well do it on New Year's Eve. So then like, at least it's a countdown and, you know, like, sure, I have my cat, but at least I guess it's not alone. 
because otherwise I probably would have just been asleep. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so is the is there any theme to this stream, or is it just going to be like a chatting? Please, please oh. study on the on the on the evening. Uh I, I am going to study, but I'm probably not going to study like the entire 24 hours. I made that very clear to them. I said that like I will stream for 24 hours. I will study most of the daytime. But like I said, like basically after 7 or 8 p.m., like I'm not going to be studying. <laughs> so um, I think what I might do is I'm going to read. Like I will just read with 30 minute intervals and then talk to the stream. Otherwise, I don't know. I don't know. Do you have any plans? Like. It's not like you can go out anywhere. Any, I mean, not you. Like, I mean, like people in general. No, actually. So Milan is technically in a red zone. So we're not allowed to um, meet up in groups greater than six. All bars and restaurants are closed except for takeaway. Um, but mostly this lockdown is to stop uh, travel outside of the zone, outside of the Lombardy area. So uh -huh. with, travel within Lombardy is fine, touch wood. So I'm hoping to go visit some friends across the city um, for New Year's and hopefully everything will be, it'll be a, a quiet evening in, I think, just a couple of drinks, a couple of friends, a bit of music. One of the guys there is a really talented um, guitarist and he's got a great singing voice. So there'll be a lot of festivities, I hope. I mean, that sounds pretty fun. That sounds nice, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm getting too old for these big blowout uh, New Year's, <laughs> like drinking until the uh, the early hours of the morning, seeing sunrise on like first day of the year. That's uh, that's not in my um, ammunition box anymore. I can't pull those off. I get tired by 10 p.m. and I'm like, all right, guys, got to go sleep now. Bye bye. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to think. I don't even remember what I did for last year last year's new year's um that's i mean i don't know i like the idea of new year's but i think it's also because i like to believe that once the new year starts i'm not going to be the same piece of shit like <laughs> i think i really like new year's <laughs> for that reason um but i also hate it because like not that i gym anymore because of covid but i used to hate how busy the gym would get in january with all the and like the thing is like you shouldn't be so dismissive because those people are there because they want to make a change but it was also really inconvenient that like january it was so packed and it was just like uh please <laughs> like, yeah, i wouldn't be that pissed off if it wasn't the fact that the gyms pushes so hard like fair enough if you want to come get better at like motivate yourself and like work on your body but the fact that the gyms push it so hard just because it's a money grab at that time of the year knowing full well that 50 percent of the people who sign up to the gym at that point in time won't be there two to three weeks later that's the part I hate the most I didn't mind it because you you know that as a as a gym goer who's there for like years that period is only like of people coming in that period is only for a couple of weeks maybe a month to a max and uh, you can deal with that you can deal with the increase of people then but the fact that it's such a money grab really pissed me off to no extent I, I think that's just capitalism in general though to be honest with you like um everything everyone is out to make a quick buck or a quick like wait the the thing is um so the the other day like someone whom like i really respect as a content creator like because now i'm like getting into con contact with content creators and stuff and someone that i really respect and who's given me a lot of like really really good advice messaged me being like i have a business idea for you that i just came up with when i was thinking about it 
And like, I'm afraid even to talk about it because I don't want him to think like, not that I think he would ever listen to my podcast, but um, he said about this thing called weight wagers. And it's like this business model where people like put a certain amount of money into a pool that they're going to stick to a diet. And if they uh, lose that, they're going like they lose that money. But if they stick to it and win, they make their money back plus like other amount of money from the pool of other people who wager on it and he was saying like he didn't really clarify what he meant but he was just like you could do something similar to that about studying and this like rubbed me kind of the wrong way because again with the weight wagers thing as well like it's I feel like it's wrong to build a business on this because you know it's going to be profitable because most people don't stick to it and Mm -hmm. It's like the gym's doing like just the money grab, like new year, new me, like leaning into it. But some something about it just feels wrong in general. Do you know what it I mean? Like, providing a false incentive, like the incentive to study or the incentive to lose weight is to better yourself, not to, to, to win something over other people you're competing against. You know, that, that, that to me is why that rubs me the wrong way. Because you're, you're, you're changing the motivation focus from bettering yourself to earning more money yeah yeah I mean I guess like the thing is I have read some research into how uh accountability is like super super important in like goal setting and other sorts of things so like when you have when you're studying or when you're losing weight like having that accountability whether it's by paying a coach or paying a tutor, like even maybe you don't need a private gym instructor, but like, because you pay them and you're making the commitment, it's like having that accountability. It has been shown to be more effective, but like, I don't know why, but it still sat with me the wrong way that I was hoping that desperate students or desperate people who want to lose weight are gambling money that they're going to stick to it. But these are very profitable businesses because after he told me about it, I looked it up and like, they are very profitable for the people who run it, of course. The yep. people who don't really need to like gamble money to lose weight. But um, I don't know. I thought it was, yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't know really what to tell you. I don't know how we got onto this topic. It was really random, but. I mean, we can take a nice little segue from goals and achievable goals to uh, the topic of this podcast, which is incompetency. Oh yeah, <laughs> incompetency. <laughs> yeah. I, I was wondering if we were still gonna go by uh, since we said like last time that that's what we'd talk about this time, but I know you did some research, so yeah, I've been, I've been I've been looking at um, you know incompetencies in medicine for for a couple of weeks, just reading about it in general. But then only maybe the past couple of days did I put some things down onto paper, so I haven't really got statistics per se. Mm-hmm. But there is definitely anecdotal advice and actual studies posted on this so I found some um, some very great articles from like the 70s and the 60s on um, on med school applications and cutting out even the possibility to have incompetent physicians in the workforce via the med school application process um, but obviously that nowadays isn't really applicable because the standard for getting into med school, I, I think personally, has gotten a lot easier compared to the 60s and 70s where you haven't got the same access to resources that we do now. I mean, it's much easier to study for exams now than I would say it was in the third, like 30 years ago, 40 years ago. See, I like, okay, this is just not, I didn't look into it at all, but just based on like 
feeling like just general sense of talking to doctors and knowing medical students now i think the competition is incredibly fierce now um no I, i don't i don't disagree with the competition but the access to resources and the access to medical school in and of itself like for instance we're both on a course where the entrance exam was the only thing that that was a barrier to access uh in the past this or at least the country that i come from and some schools in the past especially in the uk and the us this barrier to entry wasn't only just an entrance exam but your whole academic portfolio up until that point which was much more common spread um through med school applications in the past 40 years compared to now um so i'm talking very general sweeping statements but i feel personally that med school accessibility has increased not not necessarily the competition i mean and the competition has increased um probably in conjecture with that but this article um from robert c darbyshire was saying that you know to 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 have a doctor who is incompetent in the workforce leads to multitude of medical errors and i read another paper that said that medical errors account for 12% of you know patient deaths in some areas of the us which is an astronomically high figure when you think about it um but a lot of uh, i mean from some of the other things that i've read like a lot of these incompetencies aren't necessarily the fact that doctors aren't able to do what they need to do to 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 serve their role as a physician but rather their their lack of self confidence because medical um industries and medical workplaces almost instill this idea that you're not worthy of the position that you're 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 in like you go through med school you go through residency training programs uh with highly competitive people like you said before like the average med school student was was probably the top of their class in high school if not the top you know high 10% to then get into university amongst uh, all of those people who were like them in an extremely difficult course without any kind of previous failures it it makes you unable to reassess yourself like assess yourself in your own level of um um competency from a very early age like i myself have dealt dealt with failures prior to entering university many a time and i feel like i'm now i feel like i'm better equipped to dealing with my failures than some of my colleagues who are admittedly younger but also have been at the top of their field academically ever since leaving high school uh, sorry uh, ever since high school and then coming to this course and find it very difficult so I mean we've discussed previously that this notion of imposter syndrome um and doing some reading on that as well it was very interesting to see that this was a phrase that was coined in like 1978 uh for high achieving women imposter syndrome imposter syndrome is oh okay that that okay i thought this was a relatively new thing no no uh, i thought so too but uh, it was coined in 78 uh for high achieving women but shortly after was clarified not to be specific to women um and then they did some studies like Suzanne Imes and uh, Rose Clance Paul sorry Pauline Rose Clance they pioneered this research into imposter syndrome um and yeah it's a, it's a pretty wide widespread thing in the medical community um there's this one great 
paper from uh, a Canadian research institution that took admittedly a small number of uh, medical professionals all outside of um, med school in either residency programs or in consultancy uh, positions. Uh, only 28 participants, but they looked at the, their self-proclaimed level of confidence in their, in their respective field. And it's surprising how many people who are even at like consultancy level have um, deep-rooted insecurities about their ability. And it's, it's, it's strange to see how the insecurities change over time from, from resident to consultancy level being from um, insecurities about how they see themselves and how they perform themselves changing into how others perceive their abilities. So, I mean, I've got a bunch of um, quotes from this, this, um, this paper, but honestly, it's, it's one that's best read uh, from top to bottom um, yourself if, if for the uh, listeners. But um, we can also link it in the description of the episode. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, it's, um, that's kind of interesting to me that you were saying like how their feeling of competency changed because the second you were trying to describe the graph, I don't know if you heard of like the Dunning-Kruger effect or phenomenon. <laughs> okay, so Dunning, the Dunning-Kruger thing is actually, I think it's like really starting to catch on, but it's basically uh, the less you know about something, the more you think you know about it. And then mm. as you learn more about a topic, you realize how little you know about it. Mm. So like, that's like, the whole thing is uh, the Dunning-Kruger, I think it's called like a graph. Uh, yeah, I actually, I actually also read something about, the, well, not, not necessarily the, not the, how do you say again, Dunning-Kruger? Effect, yeah, the Dunning-Kruger. Yeah. So there was this former US Secretary of Defense, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, who in the 2002 invasion of Iraq said that there are, there are known knowns, and these are things that we know. There are known unknowns, and that is to say there are, are things that we do not know. We, we, sorry, things we know we do not know, but there are also unknown unknowns. And these are things that we do not know, we don't know. And this can be the same of said of medicine. As we go through medical school, like you gain competencies and you gain an insight of knowledge into what you should know. And then when you cover that base of what you should know, you start to think about what you don't know. And then um, the same paper that uh, I read from earlier from Robert C. Derbyshire um, highlighted these different categories of, of self-awareness and self-competency uh, self awareness into um, unconscious unco incompetence, unconscious competence, conscious incompetence and conscious incompetence. Okay. So it's, I feel that that's the same kind of thing that you're talking about with this Donald Kruger effect, like the level of what you know and don't know and your self-awareness about that. Well, okay, so I, I, I just looked it up, but um, I, I love cognitive biases. I'm going to start by that. I, this is the thing that I've been obsessive, obsessing about lately, but I didn't actually know that this was a, co a cognitive bias, but it says that the Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive bias in which people with low ability at the task overestimate their ability. And it is uh, related to the cognitive bias of illus illusory, like illusionary, illusory superiority and comes from people's inability to recognize their lack of ability. So it's basically like the less you know, the more you think you know. Yeah. And I, I feel like I get that a lot, especially with 
like non-medical people where they like read a Facebook article and like they're suddenly a subject matter expert on it. But so when you were describing that uh, that first study and you were saying like how their like how they rank their own competency to me felt like uh, the Dunning-Kruger thing because there, if you look at the graph, it's like, it, it, it ranks it like confidence versus actual ability. And like at first it like skyrockets up and then it kind of goes down and slopes down and comes back up again. So there is like that dip in where that transition in their self-perceived uh, competency. So I, I, I would be very curious to see that if you took the graph you were describing and put it over the this cognitive biases graph, like what it would look like. And then to maybe like, maybe they're not even related. Like, you know, I'm really bad at statistics, but I think it would be really interesting to see how they compare to each other and then where imposter syndrome lies in that. Because in this one, there's the, the, the very dip of it uh, is called like the, the valley of despair or insecure canyon. And that's basically when you realize that like, fuck, like I really don't know anything. So I wonder if uh, that's where like imposter syndrome hits you. And like this, this big hit hill, like the big top of I know, I know stuff is like when you're in first year and you're feeling like really good about medical school. And then it's just like this really bad descent. And I don't know, I think it'd be really curious to see if you could even like overlay this different data. But the, the same study didn't mention imposter syndrome because the, 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 the Canadian study wasn't focused solely on imposter syndrome. It was focused on just like people, uh, clinicians general confidence but they did hint at it or mention it in their conclusions and said that uh while medical uh, culture values confidence it abhors arrogance self-doubt or imposter syndrome was therefore perceived to be a protective mechanism against inappropriate overconfidence a useful feature of risk averse profession uh, of the risk averse profession so like i i personally perceive imposter syndrome to be almost like cognitive dissonance to my own awareness of my own actual ability compared to how I feel about my actual ability. But this article kind of almost makes it seem like most profession, uh, professionals know that they're, they're at this level of ability, but almost dumb it down to kind of mitigate any um, errors that come with ar arrogance. You know, if you're overconfident, if you're arrogant in your profession, then you are more likely to to overlook certain things because you have that kind of sense of I know it all anyway. So having this self-imposed imposter syndrome may mitigate that level of that that error-prone arrogance in some way. I okay, so I'm not exactly sure if I understand what you mean, but did you mean like you think that people are playing having imposter syndrome because they're actually arrogant about it and they want to hide it in case they make a mistake? Not necessarily arrogant. They're not actually arrogant about it. They want to avoid that arrogance. They they aren't arrogant in and of its of themselves, but they wish not they wish to to allow themselves the ability to take criticism and to learn further and in order to do that you need to have some sense of humility and be humble and that humbleness kind of manifests itself as imposter syndrome rather than an objective um view on their own actual abilities is what i got from that uh, from that conclusion to their to their study but i think that's two very different pictures of imposter syndrome one way you know your actual ability but kind of leave yourself humble and 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 
downplay your abilities because you don't want to be actually imposter syndrome then actual imposter syndrome in my opinion is complete unawareness of your actual ability the i i've been having this conversation like i guess it was more before covid hit where i noticed with some of uh i'll say my colleagues where to me it was very obvious that they did not have imposter syndrome because they were being twats by saying oh my patients and i'm like you're who like you're really like do, do you know what i mean like you know we all have those classmates where they're like oh my patients are going to suffer and it's like bitch like you don't even you don't know anything they're not your patients you don't make any sort of care decisions for them like you yeah yeah exactly and you know they're the type of people who unironically say things like work as hard as you can because one day you'll be the only thing between the patient and their grave and you know it's just those like really cringy like pre-med things and like everything about them like they're very right one dimensional like I'm a doctor and then they'll be like oh yeah I totally have imposter syndrome and I'm like no like you daily remind us how hard you're working and how like what maybe, a great- do. maybe the, the their imposter syndrome is that they're impersonating a doctor when they're not actually when it's the opposite <laughs> Okay. okay. So if you're saying it like that, it totally makes sense. But to me, like it really, like when they're like, "Oh, it's because I have imposter syndrome," or if even if someone else says it to me, it's like, it's not even saying I think I have it, but saying I have it is like I think you can't be aware of it to have it. Like I think it's it's very possible to be like, "Oh, maybe I do have it." Like maybe, like I think if you're questioning it, fine. But like, if I found it really weird that I would have like this one classmate in particular who would come up to me and be like, oh, you know, it's just my imposter syndrome. And I'm like, girl, like what imposter? <laughs> like one, you can't be aware of it. Like two, you're the most uh, obnoxiously medical student, medical student I know. Like, mm-hmm. I think you, ver- and w- one day, a few weeks ago, I got like quite, I wouldn't say sick of it because I'm infinitely patient, especially when it comes to like, things like this and I was just like do you really think you have imposter syndrome though since you know you're considering considering how you go into the hospital every day and you said that you do all of the jobs of a resident and you're basically a resident and like how integral you are and you call them your patients like do you really think that this is imposter syndrome because to me it seems clear that you know you belong there and she's like oh okay well I don't mean imposter syndrome and I'm like really because like it's it's a very specific thing um so like, again, I don't want to sound like a bitch, but like, to me, if you're at that level, like saying that, then joking about, not joking about it, but like nonchalantly saying you have imposter syndrome, that's a problem to me because I know a lot of people who feel incredibly inadequate mm. because of studying medicine and who actually really struggle with that. And then when someone just says it like really nonchalantly, when obviously they don't actually feel like that, that kind of like grinds my gears, isn't the right word, but like. I think I think what and I, I have no idea who this person is, but I think what maybe their um, their issue was is maybe a misunderstanding of the definition of imposter imposter syndrome because it is perfectly fine to feel not up to scratch, inadequate, or not fully capable to fulfill the role of whatever you're meant to be as a physician because the the nature of a clinical physician job is it's ever-changing and you're constantly throwing new responsibilities that you may not feel adept for and that's perfectly fine but in my opinion that is not imposter syndrome yeah. being um 
anxious or or very worried about your responsibilities is perfectly natural it should happen like you should definitely feel nervous about being thrown some new situation in in this job that you're not that you've never done before right this is something that that actually i i i read up on because those changes in this profession are definitely culprits for triggering self-doubt so in her capacity as a medical student who has all these roles as uh, of a of a of a resident if we take her words to be true then you know that's a very difficult situation for any med student to be in she's fifth year right yeah yeah any med student in their fifth year taking on the roles of a of a of a resident that's definitely going to trigger some kind of self-doubt but is that imposter syndrome no because you're not a resident you are like definitely not a resident so those roles that you have those responsibilities that you have shouldn't trigger any sort of imposter syndrome. Like I see imposter syndrome at like the very end of the scale. Like you have like completely disconnected from your abilities to your self-awareness, like to your, your image of yourself. And I see the anxiety and nervousness as like middle of the scale and then like confidence on the opposite end. So it's in my mind yeah she's probably talking out of butt but does she know whether she's talking out of butt who knows but um, it's interesting that this self-awareness though is one of the things that um some of some of these articles talk about as being the main way to um combat any sorts of self-doubt first and foremost and imposter syndrome like being self-aware is like apparently the key to to reducing any of that anxiety I mean, the, the thing is, like, I think it's very valid to feel anxious. And it is, you know I, know, I know we said we would talk about incompetence. And I think it's valid to feel incompetent or, like, ill-equipped. But, like, the more I read about imposter syndrome, the more I realized that it's, like, actually a lot more serious than just feeling inadequate. Because from what I read, it's, like, this really irrational phobia that you're going to be found out that you've actually scammed your way there. Like, apparently it's just like really all consuming fear that like someone's going to find out that you don't actually belong there. And to me, like, if you're having that fear that you're going to be found out, like, because you are truly like, according to yourself, like living this reality that you are a lie. Like that to me sounds like way more serious than, um, like, I, I, I don't feel like adequate. Yeah. The, the thing is like, I think, this, this is a very hard line to blur because I have talked to really incredibly capable and intelligent students who do really feel inadequate. And those are the only times where I think like, look, I, th I think you might have like a touch of imposter syndrome. Like, I think you just feel inadequate, but like, you're just really inconfident. And then like, I've seen other scales where they're like, oh, I think I have imposter syndrome. And I'm like, mm, I think if you like, if, if you're saying that you have it, I don't think you can have it because it's like a very... Uh, deeply rooted like fear and uncertainty but also like the more I talk about it the more I'm afraid of sounding like an insensitive asshole being like no if you think you have it that's impossible like because that's not what I'm saying either like I think it's okay to question whether you might have it but I also just I don't think you can self-diagnose okay th that's the that's the best way to put it I don't think you can self-diagnose your imposter syndrome like yeah it has to be something completely outside it's 
it's for someone who has says that they have self uh, sorry imposter syndrome has to be self-aware enough to recognize that they have it right but the very nature of imposter syn- imposter syndrome is that you don't feel that you're like you're completely not self-aware of your actual ability so by the mere fact of self-diagnosing yourself with imposter syndrome you automatically nullify that that self-awareness part right yeah I don't know if I explained that well, but maybe, maybe we're just, although also maybe like one day a psychologist will listen to this and be like, wow, this is so cringe. Two idiot medical students have no idea what they're talking about. It's not in the DSM-5 yet, so they can, they can fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. It, imposter syndrome is whatever I want it to be. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> fuck, I'm going to write a paper and get it in the DSM-5, get a Nobel Prize. Do it. Oh my God, I would, I would love that so much. The, the thing about the DSM and psychology is also like the whole thing with imposter syndrome and you know again we might be completely talking out of our asses is that it's never really clear cut like and it's constantly changing and this is this is something that that is the reason why I feel like I can never go into psychiatry because it's so it's so not tangible like in DSM-3 homosexuality was like seen as a mental illness like we're on DSM four like that wasn't that many DSMs ago transsexuality or transgender politics is like seen as a mental disorder even in the DSM. I'm seeing now sorry we're on DSM five now right Mm -hmm. yes uh I said four but if I remember correctly it's now more shifting towards uh dysphoria yeah and maybe dysmorphia as well to some extent oh yeah um so like it's just a mess. And I, I, I just think like psychiatry in general is just, it's so difficult to navigate. And, you know, it's, it's so hard to come up with best practices and what was right. And like, it's, it's just so, is, is the word intangible or unta- untangible? Intangible, in, I want to say. Intangible. Like one of the reasons why surgery was appealing to me is because it's tangible. You know, you do the thing and you see the result. And I think psychiatry and like psychology in general and this whole like imposter syndrome and other things like it's very it's too blurry like i i want to be able to see where the the cutoffs are um, clear-cut diagnostic algorithm for what i need to do and yeah remember. yeah like like i love that like so i'm gonna start studying nephrology and i just love that like for protein urea if it's if it's over 3.5 like right then you know that it's like nephrotic like that's it like that's a beautiful cutoff point like i know exactly where i stand now like less than 3.5 easy nephrotic like over 3.5 easy nephrotic like that's perfect with with psychiatry and psychology though like especially now that i've been doing a lot more research into like adhd and ocd and the psychomorbidities and stuff like that like it is crazy how not clear-cut it is and even like the the definition for bipolar overlaps so significantly with the definition for depression that they had to like restratify but uh, hypermania, hypomania, mania into like further subcategories, which to me is crazy. Just there's so much overlap for all of it. And there's so much we ought, like we were just saying before, there's so much the medical field doesn't know about what they don't know in this one specific mental disorder field. And it's, it also makes it quite a, an exciting place to do research in if you're that way inclined. But as a clinician, as a di- uh, diagnostician, it's a fucking mess like what the fuck yeah, am I meant to I do that. yeah I I just I could never um 
like I have a great amount of respect for psychiatrists and even like not at a medical hmm? I'll probably need one in the future is what I was thinking. yeah I I think I mean I don't know I think I, I was having this conversation with someone the other day and uh, I was basically saying that I think that everyone should have a therapist like not necessarily a psychiatrist but like some sort of therapist whether it's like for cognitive like like for CBT or if it's like more of a psychologist like um and she was like yeah but I I, I don't need a therapist and I'm like everyone can benefit from a therapist because I think everyone gets stuck in thought patterns and it's like talking to a friend that you don't have to feel bad about talking to or opening up to because you're paying them and that's their job and like you know like I think of myself when I get stuck in these like thought patterns and you have the same like film playing in your head and all a therapist does is like they take out like one specific scene comment on it and put the scene back in and then like you're replaying it and seeing how it affects it and I think like everyone can benefit from that and especially like everyone can benefit from cognitive behavioral therapy like we were talking about how mindfulness and meditation and you know uh, CBT at its roots is basically just reprogramming your thinking and mindfulness and you said that like you think kids should learn it I I agree I think everyone can benefit from it and I think that everyone should have a therapist and I know that sounds like a very like bougie thing to say um like for clarification I can't afford a therapist but I would love to be able to (laughs) I would love to have one and I think that even people who think that they don't need one can benefit from one just just to break your own thought patterns and to better understand like what you're thinking and what you're feeling and why you're reacting to the world in that way I think it's a very easy thing to to implement as well I mean on a private um, scale, pay, every person paying for a therapist probably wouldn't work. But if you incorporate it into, say, the human resources department of your workplace, if you if you hire a human re- oh, you just cut counseling. Wait, could you repeat that? Yeah, no worries. Um, I was just saying that it's 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 an easier thing to implement on maybe a wide scale. Um, basis if you take away the private aspects of it like if each person pays for their own psychologist then you know everyone's going to be bankrupt by the end of the year but if you incorporate this kind of um physician into the workplace say if you only hire human resource uh, personnel that have a degree in um psychiatry psychology or um counseling um degrees then everybody in that workplace has a therapist to go to essentially i think there's a lot of avenues to help people's mental health but a lot of things that aren't being done really negatively impacts people um but again difficult topics what you're saying is totally true because now i'm thinking about it and i i know like obviously the university is way more wide scale like but like my class has 40 people in it right mm-hmm. and an average work week is 40 hours a week mm-hmm. and you could definitely hire like one psychologist to give one hour of counseling to each student a week and that's just basically one extra full-time employee benefiting 40 students mm-hmm. um and like, okay, it's true when you think about like how many hundreds of thousands of students there is in Sapienza, like it is the biggest university in Europe. Sure, that becomes a lot harder, but I think the benefit you would get out of it is actually so much higher than um, 
I was actually talking to Swata. So like for people who, who don't know, Swata is like kind of our uh, third person that we run the website with. She's awesome. But I was talking about uh, doing ADHD testing in university uh, with her. And I was saying that I wanted to talk to our course president because I want all first years that are incoming to be tested for ADHD because it is a very, very, very simple preliminary test you can do to see if it would be worth doing a neuro battery on. So you don't have to do a neuro battery on every student, but you have 40 of them. If you just got the psych teacher to come in and the assessment takes five minutes and you did it five minutes with 40 students, right? You can do that in a day and it would be life-changing to the students who might fail that assessment and like it might be worth for them to then go and do a neuro battery and then they find out that they have ADHD. Like it is something that is so simple, a day's work by one professor and it would be life-changing in possibly four to five students because I look at my classmates and I can tell you that at least four of them have untreated ADHD and they are struggling so much unnecessarily because they have undiagnosed ADHD. And it uh, and it can come back around full circle to this whole incompetency thing because I was talking mentioning uh, talking previously about you know that 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 nineteen uh, sixties paper which said that the 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 time to root out incompetencies is at medical school. Yeah. Rather than rooting out incompetencies, you may have these people who are obviously getting into medical school. They can pass the IMAT. They can get in, but then they have these issues that aren't being found. Take ADHD. For, um, for example, they're not being found. They go through out medical school with this um, this deficit that doesn't help them study at all. And then this deep rooted self conscious, uh, sorry, this deep rooted um, self um, inability to see their own skills gets greater and greater with each passing year. If you screen for ADHD, OCD, um, anything that can impact a, uh, a person's ability to study right at the start of med school and you tackle that problem throughout med medical school, you save the money on the resources of finding a new medical student and you help those people throughout their, their degree and their professional career be the best that they can be, which is essentially what, which is what the university should be wanting for their students rather than just a paycheck that comes in every term they should be helping these people because they're going to put their name out into the workplace, you know? Yeah. Also the thing is like, uh, I'm just going to look for it now, but also I, I think it was like this uh, YouTube video, like lecture that I watched by, I think it was a guy in Stanford saying that ADHD is one of the most easily pharmaceutically treatable conditions. Uh, it's not something that like actually really, really holds you back. Like if you get the proper, well, no, that's not true. That's not fair to say. I need to rephrase that. But with pharmaceutical intervention, it is a very much very treatable condition compared to a lot of other uh, like cognitive problems. I will say. Oh, it's so, so, it's so I know I know so many medical students who are on ADHD medication without having ADHD. It's so easy to prescribe this these drugs to these people. Do you, do you think so? Because I've found. Uh, from the people I've told to go and get tested because I think that they have ADHD and I don't mean that in a mean way I'm just like look I think you might really benefit from this like for them to go and get tested was actually obstacle after obstacle because it's like oh it's because everyone just gets them recreationally so now they're like upping the difficulty to get it do you know what I mean like yeah in the UK it's very easy to get 
diagnosed like it's easy to get seen to get uh, a diagnosis if you are actually um suffering with adhd in italy uh the people that i know uh taking these medications are all getting it um not through legitimate sources but taking it just to help them study they may or may not have adhd i don't know but um and not all of them are medical students i should say like a lot of other students in this university um very easy to get on the street harder to get in uh, an actual legitimate pathway yeah because i mean it is a controlled substance because it is stimulants i think the problem is that so many people think that it's going to be like this pill from limitless that you just sit down and you suddenly want to like sit and concentrate and study that everyone wants to take it recreationally or students think it's going to give them some sort of edge so like they take it but that makes it harder for students who actually need it to get it when they when they do and the thing is like if you had this like screening um and these students find out that they have adhd like just because they have it doesn't actually make them incompetent but like by getting treated for it they can actually manage to uh keep up i guess do, do yeah, you know it's, it's the same level as like being dyslexic or um i guess just that's the only example i have but you know something that's quite easy to rectify if you train yourself properly it's the same with adhd it's quite easy to rectify with with medications as well but um i mean there are so many drugs now on the market or not even on legitimate markets like you i remember there was this huge boom of something called modafinil someone was telling me about it the other day but i had never heard about this actually so I used to do a lot of research into nootropics way back in the day, maybe five, six, seven years ago now. Nootropics is like the way you, uh, legal substances and uh, nutritional supplements that you can take to increase your cognitive ability. And modafinil back when I was reading about it was like the big boy on the scene because um, it had just blown up. It was meant to be some kind of um, alternate stimulant kind of that works on the same uh, line as um Ritalin and ADHD medications, but not, um, can't remember the pharmaceutical word for it. Not in the same drug class at all. Um, I have actually tried it once and it just gave me a fucking headache for three hours. It was horrible. I wouldn't try it. I wouldn't recommend anyone take any of these drugs unless you're getting um, a prescription for them. But that drug was not... I didn't see the appeal at all, but it, it, it was touted to make you more um, focused. Um, and from people I know who take uh, ADHD medication, the issue with being hyper-focused is, is, that if, is if, that if you're not able to direct that focus onto what you're doing, you just spend two hours procrastinating, but really focused on your procrastination, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, I was talking to my brother's friend a year, years ago about this because he said that he would like go to his university's library and buy pills of Ritalin and uh, he said that like if he took it but he got distracted for one second like that was it like he was going to stare at his mouse pad for six hours um, and this to me like just sounds so ridiculous that like they would go to such lengths and like gamble that you would be staring like a zombie at something for six hours when you don't need it rather than just the thing is though like when you were telling me that I don't know why but I got a flashback of the story and I don't know if I read this on the internet or someone told me it but uh this person and their friends were going to recreationally take Ritalin and so they took it and the person felt no different 
they just felt that their thoughts slowed down and they found out that they had ADHD. Yeah. Because they they were going to recreationally take this drug and suddenly they were like, oh wow, I actually feel like calm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and apparently all their friends were like absolutely like just like like buzzed. And uh, that's how they found out that they actually had undiagnosed ADHD. So well, there you go. That's your screening test for university. Just give each new incomer yeah. <laughs> to first year some dose of Ritalin. Throw, throw them all into a room, like a handful of Ritalin pills into the middle and see what happens. Battle Royale. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, it could be. But honestly, I just think that it's such a... The thing is, like, the actual diagnosis for Ritalin, uh, for, well, ADHD and Ritalin, I guess, the neuro battery and the viva questionnaires like it is actually a lot of work and a lot of tests and a lot of like approval to go through um but the screening you would you could do to see if it would be worth doing a neuro battery five minutes per student like that's literally all it would take and it would be life-changing to those students because one again like you said it's not going to like more deeply put these inadequacy feelings into them because again it's not like if you have ADHD you can't be a doctor there's no such thing like if you have especially if you get treated for your ADHD you can be an excellent doctor like it really doesn't impact your ability to be a good doctor Um, it will however impact those medical students lives because you know if they're not studying and they're not feeling if they're not feeling adequate and like they start going into these like depression and anxiety cycles and you know you can prevent a lot of that by finding out early on if students have ADHD and possibly getting treatment for them and it's very easily implementable like I feel like the, the overarching theme of our episodes are if you implemented this, which is not that hard, you would fix so much shit. Like, why aren't you doing it? We're just going to fix everything, you know, we're just going to fix the world. That's all we're going to do. You know what? This podcast is going to fix the world. I don't even know. Yeah. I'm going to force the dean of our university to listen to me and you just talk. Or... But uh, yeah, yeah I was... we'll have him as a guest. Fuck it. Oh my God, we totally should. That would be so fun. <laughs> but we can't curse anymore then. I had the rector of uh, Milan on this podcast I'd shit myself every minute of it no way I I, I I like I, I think I'm one of those students who uh like I respect my professors but I don't see them as above me if that makes sense no yeah I, I see that there's a there's this one prof we had in second year who was known for having drinks with his students okay no that's weird <laughs> that, that's slightly that's weird so cute. I think that's cute no like he never crossed any lines. He was just like, oh, okay. There was this, there's this one pub um, called Heart Pub in Piola. And every now and then, if you go there, you will catch a glimpse of some of our stu- uh, our professors having a drink there after, after work. And if you go up and talk to them, sometimes they'll have a drink with you. Sometimes they'll be like, nah, go away. Oh, but okay. there's this one prof who apparently, I've never seen him there, but apparently if you go up to him, ask for a drink, he'll like sit down with you for like a couple of hours and just chat shit with you for a couple of hours see that does sound nice but it's also kind of weird but that's okay I don't mean I'm that casual with my professors but I was talking to my friend Daniel about it and in general like my professors really like me but I think it's because like when I talk to them I talk to them like a colleague like I mm-hmm. joke with them and but like I'm always appropriate and extremely respectful but like I'm never afraid of my professors I'm never afraid of going up and asking them or talking to them or even pushing back on certain things because like the way I see it, I'm much, I'm much younger and much like 
more inexperienced, but at the end of the day, like, I feel like we're going to be colleagues. So even though they're like rank wise above me, I do feel like we're equals. Um, of course, like, I'm not saying, oh, I, I feel like I need to re-clarify this now. I'm not saying I'm equal to a professor, but like, I would like them to see me as a future colleague. So I treat them from the start as a future colleague. Like I talk yeah. to them the same hope way. to be a future colleague working with them. You hope yeah. to be equal. So why not start so like, now? I talk to them the same way I would talk to my manager when I worked in Facebook. Like, obviously my manager is above me. Oh, and I would like- again. Fuck you, Philip. Oh, fucking Philip. Don't get me started on that guy. Don't even, I only just calmed down about that. I'm not <laughs> counting Philip in this. I'm not counting Philip. I was thinking more of like my favorite manager who, uh, I, I work with some really great people, but like the way I would speak to my managers, obviously with like a lot of respect and understanding their position of authority over me, but basically at the end of the day equals because they're like my boss, but like they're not my like owner. And the way I approach professors is the same with the same casualty where I recognize that they're like above me, but we are colleagues and we are equals at the end of the day. Um, it's just because like my friend actually mentioned, it's like, you're so casual with the professors and I'm like saying good morning and how their weekend was doesn't seem like super casual. It's just me like talking to a colleague. <laughs> like, um, actually, I would recommend every medical student in the Italian system at least to do this because having a rapport with your professors helps for oral exams. not not even just for oral exams just for getting advice getting help from them in any capacity if they have if they know you if they can put a name to the face and if they like you then they're much more willing to go out of their way to help you with whatever you need yeah uh, and it doesn't hurt the oral exams obviously but um, it's not like a surefire way to pass every exam like there have been some professors that i really get on with that failed me once or twice for one exam but it's also because they want the best from you because they know you. So they, they know that they know you and they know what you're capable of. So if you underperform at the oral, they're going to be like, Nope, I know you can do better. Come back and do it when you're ready. Yeah. And I'd rather have that than the opposite way of just being passed just to just not to see you again. Cause there's some people on our course who fight tooth and nail with professors throughout the lecture course. And then when they get to the oral, you can tell that they haven't prepared for the oral, but the professor just doesn't want to see their face again, just passes them and bye. I've definitely seen people who should not have passed pass before. Like, for sure, I have seen that happen a few times. And I can never tell if it's like the professor being too nice that they don't want to fail the student who is obviously very stupid. Like, I, I don't want to call another student stupid, but... Like we have a third year exam called uh, Lab Med and I shit you not, this guy did not know the different types of diabetes and he passed. I am sorry, but like how, like I feel like you don't even need to be in medical school and most people know that there's like type one and then there's type two and type mm -hmm. two is the type you get if you're fat, right? Like I feel like most people who don't even study medicine could say something in that layman's terms like obviously it's way more complicated than a weight issue but i feel like yeah. someone isn't in medical school could say that and this guy didn't know what diabetes was or what the different types were and the professor was absolutely shook it but he still passed and i think it's just because the professor didn't want to fail them and was too nice and was like okay but you should really learn this and they won't. The, the amount of times when I've had someone or a professor tell me like, I'm going to pass you, but you should look at this again. And I've never read that 
that topic ever again like as soon as that exam is done it's out of my mind I forget all the information in a week <laughs> but diabetes is a is no, one that comes up time and time and time again throughout the whole six years of medicine you need like that's unexcusable, inexcusable. Well, I, I feel like diabetes is definitely not like not one that you can uh ignore it's because it's it's not even something that's like super rare you know it's 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 like one of these super 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 common super relevant like i think of our age like the most defining disease is diabetes Mm -hmm. like i think um at a stage i started getting sick of hearing about it but then i realized like how relevant it is to like every single pathology there is and every single risk and like it is a lifestyle disease and it is the most like characteristic one of our age um, I think it should be beaten into medical students. And it's like ridiculous to me that because this guy wasn't even a third year because I was in third year when I was sitting it. So he was obviously fourth, fifth or sixth, which is even worse. And yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what to tell you because sometimes you see professors like fail a student over like the most minute detail, like literally like the most minute thing that would never come up in a clinical scenario but they're like mm-hmm. so picky and so high standard. And then you have like professors that are too nice who don't want to fail this idiot because he doesn't know about diabetes. Like, And then they wonder why we're incompetent. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, maybe, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's a very complex issue of, I don't know, the whole, the whole the, everything that I read, um just came back full circle to self-awareness and constant reaffirmation of your abilities those like some tips and tricks that um some tips and tricks and conclusions that all these papers came to which was like uh, understanding how you react to your responsibilities and understanding the depth of your responsibilities fully and doing that every single time a new responsibility is added to your roster of responsibilities because the more time you spend with that responsibility the easier it becomes like the same with learning a new topic at med school for instance like take diabetes you're completely and utterly unaware and consciously unaware of the level of knowledge that is needed to fully comprehend the disease of diabetes and then the more you read about it the more experience you get with the patients and the more case studies you read the more comfortable and the more knowledge you gain of that disease to the point where you become consciously competent of at least the academic aspect of the disease not necessarily the management side of it in med school but the way you get to that point is by spending more time and more um, more cognitive time with it and understanding that you don't know shit but are trying to bridge that gap to yeah. where you're comfortable i think you just got to do that with every aspect of medicine like like for instance when i go into to the foundation program eventually touch wood um they will give me four clinical road three clinical rotations of four months each. Before I go into any of those rotations, I am studying head to bottom, head to toe, sorry. The whole syllabus, the whole NICE guidelines of everything that I could possibly need for each one of those rotations um, before I even get onto the first day. 
and I'm sure that's a common thing among med students, but it's uh, something I didn't even realize I should do until maybe a week before I started applying to the foundation program itself, because I didn't realize how incompetent I am at the moment. And I want to bridge that gap and get to a place where I'm at least comfortable with the amount of uh, work and knowledge that I need to fill that, that residency program. So the bottom line for most of these, bottom line of the bottom line of what I'm saying is that most of these papers are saying that you just need to be extremely self-aware and understand what is needed of you and ask for constant feedback. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I feel like there's no easy fix, but like doing something like that or like say, okay, so say everything you just said to me um, about like knowing your own short shortcomings, et cetera, et cetera. But like, say you had a, like the reason why I keep coming back to doing this in first year is because I feel like first year is kind of how you start first year is a pretty good indication of how your following years are going to go. Um, and like, I don't want to believe that, but I really do believe like how you start things unless you have like a drastic change is how you're going to end things now I'm, I'm in the camp where like luckily I drastically changed in third to fourth year um but my first few years were an absolute train wreck and I know the students who their first few first year was a train wreck are still train wrecks now and I don't mean that in a bad way but I really do believe that by doing these simple like screenings in first year or like having a class that would basically explain what you just said and how to approach medicine or having a class on like how to learn. Like why did no one teach us how to do flashcards when we were in first year or teach us how to actually study or like what would be good? Do you know what I mean? Like I feel doing things like this and instilling these habits and ways to approach things in first year would be life-changing for that student throughout medical school. But at the end of the six years, you're going to make more confident, more competent, doctors because I do believe to a certain degree competency is also like something to do with the level of confidence you feel for sure most definitely most definitely you can make more confident and more competent doctors by like doing basically a class or getting them to listen to this podcast just saying <laughs> uh, but yeah like it's it's just crazy to me like because what you described just there isn't it's, it's hard work, but it's not impossible. Like that's- If you're already doing hard work as a med student, so might as well add it onto that, uh, that list of impossible things that you're gonna do anyway throughout your six years, right? Yeah, like, I mean, oh, I don't know. Actually, coming back to this confidence part, there was this one thing that I read. Yeah, during their residency training, participants described that they were constantly braced for crit uh, critique. For participants struggling to strike a balance between overconfidence and insecurity, a paucity of feedback could tip the scales of self-doubt. Participants perceived that extensive feedback was typically reserved for learners who were underperforming or failing. So basically, as physicians, they feel like if you're getting too much feedback, that it uh, that it can negatively affect your your confidence levels at least that's how i understood that poorly worded <laughs> sentence but like even having confidence in your ability could be some kind of um mask almost like a lot of these people were describing the the, the way that they would put on their white coat and be perceived by patients giving them some kind of false sense of security in one camp and another camp feeling completely alienated 
in that white coat because they didn't feel like they had the authority the substance, yeah the substance the authority the skills to even be donning the white coat um even though they did their confidence was shot for whatever reason and that led to an impediment in their um their skill set so i don't know it's very it's it's such a subjective thing that's the issue it's so subjective and it's going to be different for literally every person who goes through med school um that there is like there's not going to be there, there's not going to be any quick fix like you say um and it's gonna i think at least for me it's probably gonna i'm not saying i have imposter syndrome because i know i don't but self-doubt and self-confidence is definitely an issue and it's going to be something that i'm going to be probably fighting with for the whole of my career maybe i i don't know i feel very conflicted about it because like a year or two ago i definitely felt like i didn't deserve to study medicine and sometimes i still do feel like that but i kind of also know that i have the potential to be a great doctor but it's not like arrogance because now right now i know that i'm not ready um i know that i don't know enough and i constantly feel so afraid that like i'm not going to remember enough physiology or pathology and um, i'm not going to lie i am lost with pharmacology like especially with covid uh instead of doing exams we're just doing assignments for pharmacology and i've done four so far and i can tell you that i still feel like i know zero pharmacology um it is currently like my biggest 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 problem and but the thing is like i still kind of still believe that i have the good people skills to be a good doctor i don't know if that makes sense like oh, i feel I unworthy of studying medicine in the sense that i feel like i'm a really bad medical student and i don't deserve to study medicine but on the same hand even though some of my like theory is missing i really believe that i have like the empathy and the human skills to be a great doctor so like i feel very conflicted between being like no i could be a good doctor and you're the worst sir go into research stop talking <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> i mean like in my opinion in my very basic sixth year medical student opinion bedside approach makes up 60 percent of being a doctor like if 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 a thorough and 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 proper medical history makes up 80% of a diagnosis, which is a statistic I've read time and time again in this course, if that makes up 80% of a, of a diagnosis, you can't get to 80% without having good bedside manner and being actually able to draw um, things out of people and being able to talk to people and make them feel comfortable enough to tell you what's wrong with them. So if you're not if you're only working at 50% bedside manner, then that 80% diagnostic, right? The 80% ability to diagnose people drops drastically. I think bedside manner is such an important, vital criteria for medical personnel in every aspect, nursing, uh, porters, doctors, every part. Like you need to be there for people who are going through, most of them going through like the scariest time of their life. You need to be able to handle that. If you can't, then... I think that's what really makes you incompetent. I mean, I don't know. I think it's so com complex. Like, I think the question of incompetency is like so complicated because also I was talking to a doctor friend that I have and a nurse in the hospital that they worked with. Now, I have no idea how dialysis works. So I mm. might be uh, like misremembering what they told me the mistake was. But from my understanding, they didn't, the nurse didn't have the patient in the correct position 
or afterwards during dialysis and it created an air bubble and the person had an embolism and died. Um, and it was basically a very avoidable mistake if the nurse just told them to like sit up or something first. I can't, I don't know anything about dialysis, um, like the, the care uh, guidelines for it, but it was something about the patient wasn't put in the correct position during dialysis and it created some sort of bubble and led to an embolism on the patient side. And this to me is gross incompetence. Yeah, not, yeah. But the patient was, sorry, the, doc, the nurse was loved by patients. So it was just suspended for like two weeks and then just came back on and that was it. But this also brings up another point in my mind, like, uh, we have a family friend, not even a family friend, a, a, a friend of my father's who's like, they've not spoken to for years, recently came up and started speaking to him again. And uh, my dad did some Googling of him like a couple of weeks after they started chatting and realized that he'd been disbarred or lost his medical license for some kind of medical oh, negligence. That's, that's so serious. Like, I feel like it's so hard to lose your medical license these days. <laughs> right. Because I know way too many people that should not have medical licenses, like on Instagram and stuff. But this is the anyway. thing. Like, he was, I can't, I, I know he was a surgeon in some aspect, but I don't remember in what field. And he lost his medical license because of one case. I'm not saying that this is wrong because I have no idea the nature of his cases or whatever, but he'd been working in the field for 20 to 30 years. He was the highest, uh, very high in his, um, in, his, in his field. And who knows how many people he actually helped. Like he had done, his surgery is a pretty curative intervention, right? So he's probably cured a lot of patients. And it's, in my mind, and it's probably going to be a very un unpopular opinion, it's so absurd to completely remove someone from a medical profession for one mistake. Mistakes what happen all the time. Mistake, Pardon? Was it one mistake and what was the extent of the mistake? True, true, true. Uh, you have to take all that into consideration. But if it is truly an accident and an accidental mistake, if that person has, I take a very utilitarian approach to it, like has, has this person benefited more than they have not benefited or, or caused harm? Because... I don't know, it seems absurd to me that you can go through your whole life doing nothing but helping people and then one accident that could be completely out of your control happens and then you lose all ability to help anyone from that point on. But is that what happened? Because like, for example- I don't know, I don't know. that's the assumption I made. Because in the example of the nurse, I feel like that's an unacceptable accident. If she's a dialysis nurse, yeah, for sure, that's an unacceptable accident. She should, if she's been in that profession for a long time, she should know better for sure. I mean, like, again, I don't even know if that's what the issue was, but just from the way that, like, the the doctor friend was talking about it, it seemed to be a very easily avoidable thing. And apparently, like, 101, like, something about the position or, like, uh, getting them to sit up too fast or something that was incredibly avoidable. And I think that's that's more than incompetence, that's negligence. I think that's the type of accident that perhaps I would be willing to take away someone's license for, personally. And then you have other doctors, I can't remember his name, Shepherd something, was in the field for 40 years and managed to kill, actually murder, 
20 plus people in his capacity as a physician. Was this the guy who was going after old people? He was like, yeah, he was, was a, yeah, it was a UK physician. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to euthanize. I think he was just a complete psychopath, just killing his patients because he got bored of helping. I, guess. I don't know. But then you have these other situations, like, again, I can't remember the name of the physician. She was a, it was a patient, a little boy died on her, uh, her watch. She was fresh out of med school. It was her first day in the profession. And I, if I recall correctly, again, I, I, my memory is really shoddy on this one. She was on her first night shift in her first shift and this boy lost uh, his life. Um, that to me is negligence, not on her part, but on part of the oh, hospital. That's not her fault. That is bad supervision. Um, yeah. She the, should never have been put in that position where she was the only physician on the ward to deal with it, that kind of crisis. No, also like uh, the thing is, I, I noticed this a lot, especially with relatives I'm talking to, that they think that once you finish the six years, you're a doctor, but it could not be further from the truth. Like the thing is, I realized that the reason why you learn so much in medical school and everything is thrown so rapidly at you isn't actually for you to remember that stuff. It's just so when you actually start your residency and start training to be a doctor that you have the foundation. That's what I realized about medical school. Because like, if I asked anyone in my class what the name of the bones of the feet are, I bet you none of them would be able to tell me. And I see your face right now that you're like, <laughs> nope, not happening. And it's not because it's actually important to know the names of the bones of the feet, but say now you go into ortho, you have done that. So relearning that is going to be a lot easier. And I realized that the purpose of medical school isn't to make you a doctor. The purpose of medical school is to prepare you to train in being a doctor after you graduate. And I think a lot of people don't realize this, that like finishing medical school doesn't actually make you a doctor. Finishing medical school is just gives you a piece of paper that says that now you can train as a doctor. And that sounds really weird to say, but I think maybe that's also why you don't feel prepared because everyone's expecting you that you're once you graduate, you're a doctor, but that's not the truth. Like you need to finish so many years of residency before you become an actual real doctor, if that makes sense. No, it makes complete sense. It makes complete sense. And um, yeah, I mean, it's something that I think even medical students don't really realize either. They don't, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I know so, I've been speaking to so many of my colleagues on this course and apart from one guy who actually has the the skills and the knowledge to, to pull off being a doctor, like no one else feels prepared at all. And in the Italian system, I think that's also quite dangerous because as soon as you graduate from medical school, if you can get a job, you go straight into your speciality, right? You don't get any kind of, foundation training as you would in the UK you go straight into that speciality and you do the work that you're going to do for the rest of your life straight from that point on which can be quite daunting but on the same token they don't give you as much responsibility in the first couple of years because of that so I don't know um it would be nicer though for them to give us more um clinical experience uh to train up to being at least able to do some kind of training program after med school within med school. Like I know people like take the Turkish system, for example, they're in, they have patients from third year 
I'm not going to have a patient until I graduate. <laughs> so. I was actually just talking about this in the, because on the Tuesdays I do a Turkish Twitch stream. And I was talking how it's crazy because my friend would tell me that starting in fourth and fifth year, you're expected to start doing night shifts as a medical student. And I'm like, wow, I haven't been in the hospital more than four hours during the daytime. <laughs> and I complained the entire time. <laughs> okay, I didn't. But um, like, it's crazy to me that the standard is so, the expectations are so different from country to country. But um, I just realized, has it been over an hour since we started talking? It has, yeah. We need to get better at finding. I, I think I couldn't remember. I didn't start time. Eh. No, I mean, <laughs> it's fine. These, at least we go on for two hours this time. <laughs> these conversations are extremely enjoyable. Mm. Uh, but the thing is, like, you know, th this podcast is an absolute hobby and fun. But I do feel like we need to, like, slowly start creating systems. And Oh, you're completely uh, right. Like, but, put it in an actual framework. Yeah, yeah, like a, a framework. That's a better way to put it because one, like we said, like we said this in the first episode that, um, you know, we're not after this with like a certain like listener goal in count or anything and we want the podcast to grow with us. But like, I think uh, we should probably try. I know I said I would do this last time, so I feel bad about it, but like we should probably try and uh, get a, try to get it under one hour, including oh, intro. No, I agree completely. Plus, uh... I get tired after about an hour of okay. speaking. See, I don't. I, I, I am a limitless speaker. <laughs> no, I just, I, I realized after doing a couple of these episodes that I kind of lose um, the ability to speak. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I get a bit like, blah, 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 blah. See, that, I, I did a, um, a thing for the first years, like two days ago, and I think I was talking for like two hours, and it was the first time I was like, I'm tired of talking. <laughs> it was the first time in my life that I was like, I'm tired of talking, but I was talking nonstop for like two hours, but okay, then I guess we should call it a day. Do we want to decide on something for the next episode, a topic of all, or should we do another wing it, ding it? Um... Honestly, I think maybe we should explore this topic a bit more. Like, because yeah. we, we said we would talk about competency, but um, so I like the way you read papers. I totally did not do that. I just thought we were going to talk about it. So, but then we kind of went more in imposter syndrome again. So I was thinking maybe it would be really interesting if next week we talked again about incompetency, but like now compared it to like having the Dunning-Kruger, like read a bit about that and mm. reading a little bit about like the paper you talked about and then reading more about imposter syndrome and like trying to extrapolate like our own uh information about it like i think that could be really cool because like my statistics is weak but from all of the things we talked about there seemed to be so many overlapping parts where like each part could fit into mm -hmm. so do you think like we should expand on it even more but this time we both do well, I say both because you did research, I did not. <laughs> um, if we both did research into it. Yeah, most definitely. I'll be up for talking about this again because uh, the more I talk about it, the more comfortable I feel <laughs> about graduating. So uh, yeah, most definitely. I, 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 think, I think it's worth it. And yeah, and maybe we should even try to come up with like a solution and then I'm going to present it to my course president. I decided that I'm just going to be an absolute pain in the ass. Uh, okay, I know, I know I said we're going to end it, but I, I, I've, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately, and I was 
listening to this guy who they got this like really, really lucrative deal, uh, even though they were the smallest company with the least to offer because they were like basically pain in the asses about it where they just kept going and they would go the next day and they're like, no, see, this is why this company is bad and you should go with us. And then they go, go the next day and I'm like, okay, we can also like offer these. And they just were such pain in the butts about it that eventually they were like, fine, we can see that you really want this, we're going to do it. So now that's how I feel about like hounding my course professor about putting these changes in and testing the students for ADHD and doing like maybe like the thing you said by teaching them about imposter syndrome and like how to overcome this feeling of inadequacy by scheduling a one hour lecture with them and like volunteering as tribute if I have to. But so now if we do this research a little bit and talk about it next thing, then I have even more to bring to the course okay. Yeah, okay. and be a pain in the ass about <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay. Maybe okay, um, we can also talk about other things that um, like medical conditions that would really impede a person's ability in the first couple of years, or throughout the whole thing, but could be easily nibbed in the butt in the first year. Like ADHD, like ADHD, OCD, yeah. dyslexia, or anything like that. Do you think, though? Okay, this might be interesting because I feel like dyslexia would actually impact being a doctor a little bit, like with writing <sighs> medication orders and doses. Not particularly, because I could see systems being put in place on a personal level. As as a person, no, I don't have dyslexia, but as a person with dyslexia, they could put in some systems of their own that would mitigate any chance of there being um uh discretions like that like you could easily write a prescription and then ask someone to check that prescription before you give it to the patient okay i mean the thing is i don't know enough about dyslexia i would just be afraid of like putting a comma in the wrong place which i believe in dyslexia is more likely to happen now we can talk about it on the next podcast we can do some more research because i haven't done any research ah! Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Okay, I'm going to end the recording. So see you. Outro jingle. <laughs> one day, one day it's going to happen. One day. Wait. Okay, so stopping the recording.